Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very happy, very excited to bring the conversation I had with Damien Searles. Damien is a translator and a philosopher. He has translated numerous works. He has translated works by Fossa, by Nietzsche, by Proust, Rilke, and many others. Um, he's also the author of the book, The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing, which is a marvelous book. And he is also working on uh, a new book on the philosophy of translation. He also has a, another translation coming out uh, a bit later this year, uh, The Tractatus by Wittgenstein. So all that to say, Damien is a, a fabulous translator and keeps himself very busy. I've wanted to talk to Damien for a long, long time. Um, I've read a lot of his translations, and I wanted to kind of get a, a peek into his process of how he does that um, from different languages into English and, and really understanding the importance of translation. We start the conversation by talking about the philosophy of translation, what that means for him and how he looks at that. We talk about decisions that are made in translation and the decisions that he will uh, come upon when he's translating. We talk about the primacy of reading. Um, there was this really interesting bit in the conversation where he talks about himself as a translator is putting himself in the reader's position. And I, I thought that was absolutely uh, fascinating. And it's, uh, it's a, I think it's a great way to, to, to understand how someone's translating. Uh, we talk about trusting the translator. We talk about language proficiency, native language versus fluent language. We talk about translating dead languages versus modern languages, translating uh, authors that are uh, dead and those that are still living with the differences there. Uh, we do talk a little bit about his uh, recent uh, translation of the Tractatus by Wittgenstein, which was, which is a lot of fun talking about that. Uh, we also talk a little bit more kind of specifically about his whole process, um, how one can select a translation and many more topics. Again, I was I was super excited to talk to Damien. I've wanted to talk to him for uh, quite some time and uh he was he was so wonderful. I I learned many many things from the conversation. He pushed me to think about things in a different way and and I just came away from from it very fulfilled and and um I I hope the same is true for all of the the listeners out there as well. As always, you can find uh, this conversation and all other conversations at convergendialogues.substack.com. It's also on YouTube, so go and uh, subscribe, follow, uh, share widely. And now I bring you Damien Searles. I am here with Damien Searles. Uh, Damien, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, to speaking with you. Me too. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. You have so much work that you have put out, so much stuff that you've translated. Um, so you've you've done uh, more recently. It's just been released. Uh, My Men by Victoria Keeland. Am I saying this right? Uh, Keeland. Uh huh. That's a new translation. Uh, great book. You've obviously done. Let me see if I get this right. Is it Yun Fosse? Uh, yeah. The, the Septology, uh, which was lovely. You've translated Rilke and Nietzsche and so many others. You have your own book, uh, The Ink Blots, uh, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing, and a forthcoming book um, on translation. Uh, so you've done a lot. So um, a lot of really good stuff. I guess, how do you usually um, 
kind of introduce yourself with like professional academic background and then kind of what you do now and how do you, what's the kind of thumbnail of what you Yeah, I mean, the, thumb, the thumbnail is I'm mostly a translator. So um, that is what um, most of the publications are and most of the time is spent doing. But, um, you know, uh, it depends on the, the context. If I am um, talking at a psychology conference about Herman Rorschach and his life, then I won't necessarily get into the translation thing, but I'll say that I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I came at it from the cultural side mm-hmm. as, as a writer. So, um, you know, uh, it, I usually just say, the I, I lead with the translation foot, though. I feel like that's most of what I'm I'm doing. And the rest is, you know, more or less related to it. Mm, yeah. So that's one of the major things. I, I do want to save a little time for, for Rorschach because uh, I love Rorschach and I love, you know, giving them and interpreting. And, you know, that's it's it's a lot of fun. So it, your book was fabulous in that way. So I want to save some time for that. But most of it, I want to talk about translation, which is super fascinating to me. Um, we can get into like the the nitty gritty, but I guess what's the kind of overview of sorts of philosophy of translation? Um, how do you define translation? What's the essence you're typically trying to accomplish, or is it kind of varied from thing to thing? Kind of what's the overall arc, I guess, of the philosophy of translating? Yeah. Uh, so um, the the book that I'm finishing up that should come out next year, the philosophy of translation. Um, is called that because it is trying to be this kind of big picture. You know, it's um, both on the big picture and on the little picture. It can often be kind of boring to talk about translation because you always say the same thing and you always hear the same things over and over again about like, well, you know, you have to be faithful, but not too faithful. And, you know, what a paradox do you follow it or are you creative and like all that kind of stuff um which you know i'm saying a little sarcastically i don't mean to be dismissive those are all real and good questions but i kind of wanted to sort of really take the big picture of um saying something not just in a kind of like descriptive register of like, oh, here's what I'm doing when I'm translating. But like, what does it mean? What are we actually doing? And a book that did that is is George Steiner's After Babel, but that's almost 50 years old now. It's coming from a very different sort of Olympian perspective where he felt entitled to just pass pronouncements on everything. Um, And since then, there's been an explosion of an academic field of translation studies with a million very specific, specialized, and, you know, uh, interesting arguments among each other about all sorts of of things. So um, it just felt to me that there hadn't been, I mean, obviously, many of the translation studies books sort of make big sweeping claims. And many of them even live up to those big sweeping claims. But still, I felt like I didn't want to be um, 
down in those trenches, like fighting the academic battle of citing every theorist I've ever read that I agree or disagree with and sort of positioning myself. I wanted to just kind of put something out there. I thought of it as a primary text and not as a secondary text about other philosophies. So that's why I'm calling the book not philosophies of translation, like here's Derrida's, here's Venuti's, here's everyone else's. But here's here's what I'm saying is the philosophy of translation. And now that's another thing in the world that you can agree or disagree with or use however you want to use. Um, so I think the philosophy of translation may sort of come across as like, oh my God, can people still call a book that? Like, who does he think he is? But I don't mean it in an arrogant way. I mean it in a kind of generous way. Like, here's now something else that, um, you know, of course is not 100% new. Like, there are not going to be any new ideas on any philosophy that, like, no one has ever thought of. Mm -hmm. But I put it together in a way that, you know, I don't think other people have put it together before because it kind of grew out of my, um, you know, relatively idiosyncratic kind of background and and reading history and stuff like that. How much so, of this do you feel is I guess personal for you cuz you know you're you're you've you know got a, a different background you're, you you your your hands are on a lot of different things but you see yourself it seems primarily as translator. And so how much of this for you was like is this you know a, a way of saying like this is a a personal thing of like I've done a, a lot of things I've translated a lot of things and here's the kind of uh, collective I've gathered from doing this process of this is what translation kind of is in and out. And yes, you can disagree with the theories and stuff, but generally it's there. So how much of this, I guess, was personal for you, I guess? Um, I think the answer is probably all of it, but I'm not sure quite what you mean by personal, like as opposed to what, you know, um, I uh, think that you know, part of what I argue, I haven't really answered your question yet about like what the philosophy of translation is, but, um, you know, it is always coming from the personal or subjective kind of place of whoever's doing the translation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, on the one hand, uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping that this book kind of really expresses what I think and how I feel about this interesting thing that I spend my time doing, mm -hmm. right? Um, on the other hand, like, I kind of believe it, too. You know, I think it's it's true. Uh, I'm not presenting it as a memoir or as my, mm -hmm. you know, opinion, although obviously it is. Um, I'm, I'm making a case that this is really what translation is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly the kind of the subjective. Uh, yeah, that's no, not a memoir autobiographical or maybe there's bits in there but more of like what is it from your work and how you're doing it and some of the motivations of saying like well now i want to write about this like how i've been doing these things and how it's you know out there in the world and and ideas that you've gathered there more so in that subjective way i am curious about how how do you define i guess a translation or what that kind of specific philosophy is if you if you have ideas yeah, um, it is a bit hard to kind of encapsulate, like, without answering a specific question. But I will say that um, I started off the um, 
I start off the book kind of addressing and then dismissing what I think is the basic understanding that most people who, you know, have thought a little bit about translation have, which is this idea that you have something that's over there somewhere else in a source language, in a source culture, you know, somewhere different from me. And then as a translator, I'm bringing it from over there to over here. I mean, the word translation, translatio, is Latin for carrying it or ferrying it across. And, you know, that's, I think, the main metaphor that people just kind of have, that there's something distant, and after it's translated, it's not distant anymore, it's over here. Um, And in a way, that sounds very harmless and almost meaningless. Like, what could be wrong with that? But the problem is that once you sort of go about positing this split between over there and over here, you're always going to run into the same problems of like, how can you cross the divide and how can it be both? And, um, you know, what is lost in translation when you're bringing it over? And is it really the same thing? And like all these kinds of um, uh, standard like paradoxes about translation. And so one thing that, um, a, a way that I like to think about it that's a bit different from that is that translation, it, it, in a way, is sort of more focused on the translator than on the text. So the thing I just said is about how, you know, some text, some piece of writing or spoken language is brought somewhere else. But uh, if I'm a translator, I'm not going anywhere and I'm not bringing anything anywhere. Like I sit there in my same room and read something in German and I haven't gone anywhere. I'm just reading, but I happen to be able to read German and some people don't, but it's still just reading. Um, And so the way I think of translation probably on the most general level is that it's a kind of writing that is attached or correlated to a kind of reading. You know, when you're when you're producing a translation, you're writing something that's kind of linked up to what you're reading, namely the original text in the other language. Um, and then following from that, what I think is that the writing part is not that specific to translation. Writing a translation is basically the same as writing anything else. You are working within the language you're writing in, with generic conventions and expectations, you're trying to make it sound good. It doesn't matter if it's a Chinese poem or an Arabic poem you're translating, you're trying to produce an English poem. And um, sure, you are constrained by the fact that you're trying to produce an English poem that someone else wrote in Chinese, but whenever you write in English, you're constrained. What is a novel? What do readers expect? What's grammatical? What's correct spelling? Like you're always constrained. And I think it's more or less just a difference in degree, not kind, between the constraint of writing a translation and the constraint of trying to write a good short story or whatever else. So I think the reading piece is where the... um the kind of meat of the translation process is. Um, you're 
engaging with the text that um, you're reading in a somewhat different way if you're a translator, because you're paying attention to how it uses its language. And you're trying to do the same thing, but with the entirely different resources of your language. Um, I I can give an example that I, I give in the book and I've given before, but I think it's useful Please. to just get concrete a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the languages I translate from is German. And... Um, in German, you tend to use the construction that's the equivalent of not this, but that much more often than in English. So you'd say, I want a not kale salad, but double cheeseburger. And in English, you'd say, I want a cheeseburger. I don't want a salad. You'd sort of say what you want first. You say, the train leaves at 530, not six. Now we're late. You know, come on, get a move on. But in German, you go the other way around. The train leaves at not 6, but 5.30. Hmm. So in English, that seems like a totally maddening and pointless little detour. Like, why are you telling me what it isn't? In German, it doesn't feel that way. It feels very sort of considerate that you like care enough to home in on on what's really the truth. Hmm. You're sort of acting out this um, kind of... I don't know what the word is, behavior of, of care. And, you know, like it matters to you. Uh, but in English, like it just is annoying. Like the stuff that isn't true is getting in the way of what is true. So as a translator, you usually just flip it around and say, you know, say it in an English sentence that makes more sense. If it's some long sentence, then you can sometimes leave the not this, but that, like we're allowed to use it. And sometimes it makes sense, you know, or if there's really not much of a contrast, but the German is just performing this um, gesture of like getting closer and closer because it matters, then you can just take out the contrast altogether. There are all sorts of translation strategies. No one had ever taught me this. I had never like really thought about it. Whenever I ran into it in German, I would just flip it around or do whatever else to put it in English. Um, Then I started translating this book by an author who used this um, structure over and over and over again. So my draft was like filled with all these not this, but that's. And finally, I'm like, why does this keep sounding like this? You know, what is going on? And that's when I realized that it's part of the German language. And that's also when I realized, though, that, of course, this author wasn't just using some tech of German. He was writing like this because he deeply believes in homing in on the truth and performing this act of, you know, attentive, close attention to things. And that's why he used this structure all the time. So now there's a problem because we can't just fix it because it's not just a tick of German like passive sentences that there's no reason to preserve in English. There is a reason to preserve it because it's the whole ethos of this author. But you can't preserve it by saying not, you know, a not salad, but cheeseburger all the time because that just sounds ridiculous. So you have to kind of do the same thing with the different resources. And so 
reading as a translator is seeing how I use the metaphor of like a baseline, right? So how is the author in German kind of pulling away from or sort of arcing off of the baseline of German? If they're not pulling away from it, then you don't want to pull away from it in English. If it's just a normal passive sentence in German, you make it a normal passive sentence in English. But if they're doing something to the German, you have to do the same thing, even though you're doing it to English instead of to German. Um, and so that way of reading with attention to kind of the difference between this specific text and the language as a whole, that's what I call reading as a translator. Okay. And so um, then when you're writing your thing in English, if you're translating into English, you are trying to kind of preserve this difference or tension or arcing off the baseline, even though the baseline is totally different because it's a different language with different rules and expectations. It seems that there's always a lot of decisions you have to make, right? And there's, well, maybe not a lot, but there's, you're, you're usually at certain ways you're, or in certain passages or phrases or whatever, you'll have a, a fork in the road, so to speak, or, or, or many doors that you could go down. And when you feel, when, when translating, how do you find the space to say, I guess, um, what's the heuristic you're trying to use? It's like, well, do I want to find really what the text says? Do I want to find what the German and how we understand the language there? Is it the author's intent? How do you have like a kind yeah. of heuristic of making those hard decisions? Because obviously languages aren't the same at some point. Right. Um, uh, first of all, yes, there are tons of decisions. I mean, it's not a fork. It's like a gigantic spaghetti plate, you know, because <laughs> every single, you know, word and sentence structure and sentence length and decision about register and um, assonance of the words, you know, every single thing is your decision, just like when you're writing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the only thing that makes me hesitate about this language of decision, which I use all the time in my book, is that for me, and I think for most translators, when we're actually doing it, we're not being analytical like that. We're just trying to make it sound good. Um, and after the fact, you can go and give 85 different, you know, arguments about decisions that we made. Um, but it's not necessarily the case that we thought it all out, like literally beforehand, any more that, than when you're, I don't know, playing a saxophone solo, you're deciding all the notes. I mean, in a way you are, you're, it, it's up to you whether you make them or not. But it's not like you're analytically thinking through all the possibilities. You're just sort of doing it. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, your question, though, like what, uh, what are we thinking about or what are we kind of trying to, to be true to? I think what it is is the read, again, back to reading. It's the reading experience. I've read the book or am in the process of reading the book. You know, I've read the sentence. And I'm a good reader, and I've noticed things, I've felt things, it's done stuff to me, like if it was funny, it made me laugh, 
if it was sad, it made me sad. You know, if it was brilliant, it made me admire it, whatever. And I'm trying to create or I'm trying to create that experience for a reader who has to read the original indirectly, you might say. Mm-hmm. Like, I read it and I had a reading experience and that's the experience I'm trying to give to, um, you know, whoever's going to read my translation in English. And that's part of why it's not a bringing thing because like, I'm not in Germany, I'm not a native German speaker, but I can still read a book in German and have an experience. Mm-hmm. And you too, you can read a book that was written originally in German and translated by somebody and have an experience, right? Um, and so the other advantage of talking about it that way is that it makes it much easier and much less kind of paradoxical seeming to acknowledge that different translators are going to translate differently, that there's not a single best, most faithful, most accurate translation that, you know, our goal is to try and get as close to as possible. Because just like when everyone reads Jane Austen, in a way they're reading a different book, although in a way they're not. Anytime you read Anna Karenina, you're reading a different book although in a way not. And so each translator is trying to be faithful to their experience of that book. And so that's why different translations are going to look different. It's not a failing any more than it's a failing that everyone is going to read a Dickens novel differently. Mm-hmm. That's just how reading works. That's one of the things that's very interesting about reading, that it's you can't really say it's subjective or that it's objective because you're reading what's there, but you're reading what's there. So it's not a problem if you come up, if you have a different feeling than someone else will have. That's, that's very, very interesting. I've never thought of it that way. Uh, and it, <laughs> I, it's interesting because I, I absolutely agree with you because there's, yes, the objective subjective piece, whether it's in one language or if it's in a translate language, do you ever, I think I know the answer to this, but do you ever worry that maybe in translation less about, am I being accurate to maybe let's say the language or the author's intention, um, but more so of, am I, is my experience in reading and then translating getting in the way of what somebody else's experience could be? Or is that just the, as you were saying, you know, well, this translation's got that tone and this translation has this tone and you read them all or don't or pick which ones you like. But do you ever worry about that where you're kind of, um, maybe sometimes translation can be more obstructive than more opening, I guess, in some ways? Well, sure. Anything you do in life, like, can be selfish and um, a way of shutting down other people, or not. You know, uh, I I wouldn't exact. I mean, I wouldn't exactly say I worry about it because the whole point of what I'm doing is trying to read the book. If I wanted to write my own poem, I'd write a poem. You know, and if I'm trying to translate someone else's poem, then the whole point is that I'm trying to kind of read faithfully to to something that's actually there. 
you know, I, uh, no one has a God's eye perspective on every possible way to read a text. So, you know, in the back of my mind or sometimes in the front of my mind, I'm like perfectly well aware I'm not going to get everything, but I'm not trying to get everything because no one ever gets everything because that's not what reading is. Reading is a subjective engagement with something. So it's going to have my interests and perceptive abilities and personality kind of built in anyway. So uh, if someone else thinks that like what I have brought to a translation is, um, you know, unfair or super limited and limiting or, you know, all these other bad possibilities you mentioned, then yeah, maybe they're right. And then they won't want to read my translation. Maybe they'll convince other people to not want to read my translation. That's just how it is. And, um, but I wouldn't say I worry about it. You're, you're putting, and I wonder if this is something that kind of your philosophy or your experience, or is this something kind of within the translation world? It sounds like you're putting a primacy on reading and the experience of reading. Is 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 this right? And is this kind of something generally, or is this something how you kind of come at it? Um, I think probably it's more me, but as I kind of said earlier, um, you know, I don't think that my book and that I in general am like super, you know, it's not, it's not a key part of my skill set to have total mastery of the field, like knowing all the different branches of all the different debates and like what everyone has said. Like I'm informed, I'm not some, you know, autodidact just making this all up, but I'm not in a way in the discipline of translation studies. And I'm neither trying to nor would I probably be able to, you know, give a really fair and thorough map of what everyone's ideas are that are out there. So uh, in a way, I'm the wrong person to ask, like, how much my idea about reading, like, is standard or non-standard or whatever. My sense is pretty non-standard that, you know, I don't, I haven't run across many people that talk about it exactly this way. I've run across a lot of people, like everyone I agree with, sort of sharing some aspect of this. But um, yeah, I don't know. As far as I know, um, talking about translation as like reading linked to writing, but reading is the sort of defining part, um, isn't something I see that many people talking about. Yeah, I mean... I personally, I really, I really enjoyed that. That's your perspective because it's, it gives for me, I think for people that as readers, when you obviously aren't reading in an original language, you're the reader is very dependent on the translator, right? Of saying, look, I don't know German, you do. So I got to trust that you made certain decisions that are certainly accurate you know to language or 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 kind of you were saying how when you were reading it and this was the experience but also that there's flexibility with it too right that there's a lot of flexibility there which is either way the reader whoever's reading the translation is trusting i think some ways the translator do you see it that way or no um in some ways yeah but i think that the way you framed it um 
sort of buys into what I think is kind of an unfortunate way that people think about translation. Mm-hmm. I know that, for example, uh, in book reviews and book reviewing, there seems to be this real anxiety of like, here I am, I'm someone who publishes my opinions about other people's books every day, but I can possibly publish my opinion of a book that's translated because I don't know Spanish. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why not? You publish your opinions of books by people of different genders and classes and centuries and experiences and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, like what makes this particular difference so paralyzing and frightening? And I think the answer is that um, most of us think of translation in a kind of schoolroom context. What's translation? Translation is what you do when you're taking French one and you have to prove to your teacher that you've memorized the vocabulary list. (laughs) And so translation is taking a passage in French and writing it down in English and then getting graded by someone who is fluent in French. That basically that's what translation is. And so If I'm not fluent in French, how could I grade someone's translation exam? Therefore, how could I review someone's novel? Mm -hmm. Like, and I just don't think that that is the most useful or accurate framework to go into it with. When you were three years old and you were hearing about Cinderella, that's a translation from French. And Mm -hmm didn't bother you. Like it wasn't a problem. It wasn't an issue. You were just like engaging with Cinderella or like Greek myths, you know? Um, It's only kind of after the school system that suddenly like, oh, how can I judge someone's translation of Cinderella now? Um, You did it all the time when you were three, you know? So um, yeah. So on the one hand, the reader needs to like trust the translator. But on the other hand, why not just think about it the same way you think about how a reader feels about an author? You know, if the reader needs to kind of decide to go along with what the author is doing, but, you know, nobody's grading anybody. Like, it's just, it's just a book that you're reading. So, um, you know, I guess I think, why should you feel that the like stakes are so much higher or something if you're reading a translated book? Because, oh, my God, what if they're going to get a B minus in the translation? You know, Um, I just think that that framework, you know, is useful for some things if you're producing like academic bilingual editions or for, you know, if you're translating like diplomatic speeches at the UN, like you better be accurate. Um, But, you know, maybe, maybe you're just imposing a little too much like schoolroom Mm -hmm. terror on the whole process. If you like pick up some random novel. Mm -hmm. It's it's, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I certainly have felt that way. I'm sure maybe other people do where it's like, yeah, it's that whole like, Oh man, like, I have to get all the vocabulary right. And if I don't, I'm getting a grade. And so like, ah, it's all this, it is a little bit of a kind of, I guess, anxiety there. Um, that's why I think I, I really enjoy your, your framing is it's like, no, just read the story. Like you'd read anything else. Like like your Cinderella example is like, yeah, well, you just read the story and, or you heard it or whatever when you were young and you didn't think too much about it. 
I think that's a no. That was French. Thing. It was translated, but you know, it was just a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that's. I think that's that's a helpful perspective, uh, at least for me, and I think for maybe other people as well. I guess you know it comes up too in the context of um, you know people sometimes ask me like they give me the softball interview question of like um, do you think reading translations is important mm. for you know expanding your horizons and being a good global citizen and you know being more. Um, engaged with diverse perspectives and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so on the one hand like yes sure but on the other hand i'm like not here to make anyone eat their vegetables like (laughs) i just think that some books that weren't written last year and published in english are good books and like i want access to more of them and that's why i read in other languages and since I'm able to give other people access to them, like that's my job. And if you don't want to read translations, great. If you don't want to read books at all, if you want to see movies, that's fine. Nothing wrong with movies, you know? So uh, for all the like good, wholesome values of reading books in translation, like that's not my ultimate interest. I'm not, I don't see myself as like anyone's nanny who's trying to like, bring them up right or something. I just think that these are, you know, good books. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I fully agree. I think people should should read and people read what they like. And I think people, I think typically when people read a lot, they tend to have, a, they start to gain a wider uh, skill set of, of human experiences, maybe vocabulary. They start broadening on certain topics and things like that. I think it's it's like anything else. I think that people start to become more interested in certain things. Some people like to just stick to the same kinds of things, but I think I do think it's a it's a beneficial thing. But people should do what they want, right? Like, I mean, that's that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree that it's a good thing. Like, I think you know, wider exposure to the world is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I just don't see myself as you know authorized to try and like push people to do that nor do i think i'd be super convincing at it you know mm-hmm. other than if other than by example you know other than if they hear me or read me or read a translation and think like wow that was worth doing maybe i'll do that again you know like that's the only way i'm going to convince anybody of anything um i'm not going to like have some political program that mandates it and um more power to the people who do it like there are people who design curriculums like the american school system could be designed to teach languages better and i wish it were but like that's not my skill set like i'm not doing that mm-hmm. yeah let me just ask one quick question about uh one aspect of language and then maybe more abstractly so you know a handful of languages is there for you personally, um, and then maybe opine generally, do you think there's a certain level of proficiency with the actual language that you should have if you're translating? So like, uh, you know, high school Spanish probably isn't good enough to translate, or is it? Or, you know, how do you usually determine, I guess, for yourself, and then maybe more, you know, generally you would look for in a translator to be like, hey, you should probably know, you know, French this way or German this way, like, or is that more varied as well? 
Well, there's a real, um, there's a real, I think, split in the translation world or among people who practice and, and publish and think about translation. Um, and, you know, at the extreme on either side, it's going to be a problem. But um, there definitely are people who think that what matters is being super fluent and proficient in what usually gets called the source language. Um, and then there are other people who think you're writing a book in what's often called the target language. I don't really like that because of the like artillery or like archery metaphor. Like <laughs> we're not like aiming at English, you know? So I like to call it the translating language. So if you're translating Anna Karenina into English, the source language is Russian and the translating language or the target language is English. Anyway, um, I, uh, as I imagine you could guess already come down on the second side of that, which is that you're, if you're translating into English, you're producing a book in English and you have to be able to write in English. Mm -hmm. And um, if you are super duper intensely expert in Russian, but you can't write well in English, then it won't be a good book in English and no one will want to read it. Mm. Um, so does that mean you can know no Russian at all? Well, no, but you have to be able to read in Russian, whatever it is you're translating. Um, and then you have to be able to write in English. That's Those are the two things you're doing when you're translating. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are more or less uh, expert ways to read. In other words, even from the languages I translate, um, there is a range. Uh, I'm not a native speaker of any of them. I grew up monolingual in English. Um, my German is quite good. I could have like a dinner party where like half the people speak English and have to speak German and I could translate back and forth all night. And like, it's not a problem. I know German, although no one would think I'm fluent. I mean, no one would think I'm native level. They'd think yeah. I'm fluent, but not native level. Mm -hmm. um, other languages I translate, I am less proficient at speaking or at understanding spoken. Mm. On the other hand, I still feel that for the texts I translate from say Norwegian, I read them well, you know, I read them well enough to, to very deeply kind of get out of them something that I can then produce in English in my translation. Mm -hmm. And so I personally come down on the side that that's what matters more because you're producing a book in English. So it's got to be well-written or else game over. Mm -hmm. Um that's that's but, interesting. You know, I, I do recognize both sides, and mm -hmm. like, um, I just think that the real gatekeepers who are like, "Oh my God, you're you know, Norwegian is not perfect enough. How dare you?" Mm. It's like, well, readers like it. The author who speaks English likes it, and um, and I have a sense of responsibility that I feel like I'm meeting. If there's if I feel like it's a text that I can't really grasp, mm -hmm. then I'm not going to agree to translate it. Mm. Um, there's a famous story about this 
uh, with Proust. So Proust was also a translator. He translated John Ruskin from English into French. And he was the first person to translate John Ruskin books. And um, actually, almost all the great writers you can think of from any uh, country other than England and America are usually translators. Like, that's just very typical everywhere else. Um, But Proust included. Anyway, Proust did not know spoken English like super well. And so the story goes that he was, you know, in the halls of his publishers and overheard someone being like, this translation of Ruskin is going to be terrible. Like, Proust can't even order a steak in English. Like, And Proust draws himself up and says, I do not claim to know English. I claim to know Ruskin. And, you know, you can't quite buy this story. Like, he overheard it in a publishing office? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And, um, and of course, you do have to know English. But the fact is, his translation is great. And everyone mm-hmm. likes it. And he makes a couple of dumb mistakes, like, you know, feet for meters or whatever. But nobody cares because uh, it gets the style. And not only that, it helped teach him the style he would use in remembrance of things past. So it did great things for French literature and then world literature. So, you know, all of the gatekeepers who would be like, no, you're not allowed to do this. You know, I I don't really think they need to, you know, police that. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. It's, 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 it's very interesting, especially if you're getting it, it, how we understand language in the brain and things like that. Like there is definitely a difference between understanding, reading, speaking, and then all of these different ways. And some people really are good at comprehension and reading, but they just, the, the kind of um, expression of it is more challenging, but that doesn't mean there's a lack of understanding there. It's, it's very, it's very varied in, in how these things work out for different individuals. I mean, even in German, you know, I couldn't write a book in German. It's just not the skill set mm-hmm. I have, but I can read pretty much any book in German. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of spoken can also, you know, understand what anyone's saying in German. That doesn't mean I can write in German, but that doesn't, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm not translating anything into German. So mm-hmm. I don't need to be able to write in German. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Let me ask, let me ask about just language. And this is abstract. So if you if you wanna if you wanna uh, swat it away and 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 <laughs> not get into it, that's fine. But I guess I'm I'm curious about a lot of people with different types of you know theories or philosophies put a lot of emphasis on language. Um, language is power and it's a powerful tool. You know, if you you know read anything from uh, kind of the postmodern folks and things like that, and 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 then there's people before them that you know kind of see it differently. Do you think that there's too much of? Do you think people overemphasize language? I guess generally, um, and so this kind of comes through in the wash of like, well, with translation as well, and people kind of get really like you know granular in these things. But do you think? You know, is it just is language just symbols? It's just ways of communicating, and that's it for how people know it in their you know part of the world. Or do you think there's more than that? To, like that has power, and we don't really know things unless it's through language. Like, if you want, if you want to answer, but I'm just curious about your your thoughts since you interact with so many languages and languages for people that write things about different experiences that we have as humans. 
I just how much how much importance do we put or should we put in in language, if at all? Well, what if you took that whole question and substituted instead of saying language, saying behavior? Is everything is behavior power or it, does behavior just mean stuff or do um, we pay too much attention to behavior? Like mm. it, it doesn't make much sense anymore because behavior is what there is. It's like mm -hmm. what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I think that I see language in that sort of context. Like there are all sorts of things people do with language. You can you can boss someone around or you cannot boss someone around. You can, uh, I mean, uh, so I guess you did mention tool in there. I, I think that's a good way to look at it because, um, because tools are such, tools are just a way of saying you're using it. Mm -hmm. And so like, yeah, people use language and sometimes the, it's in a power struggle and sometimes it's in a love affair and sometimes it's in a, you know, weather report, like whatever. There's just all sorts of different things you can do with it. And, um, and so it's hard to even know what that would mean to say we're paying too much or too little attention to it because it's like what people are doing and what we're engaging with. Um, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. It does answer it because I think that I think for me, it's always, well, people are using it and they're going to use it in different ways. And I think some people try to create these, um, sweeping generalizations of like, well, this is what it is and that's it. And, or it's not, not any of that. And I think it's like, well, people are going to use it in different ways. And I think that if you're. I think if you're being clear or trying to be clear about how you're using it, I think that's what's most probably important. But well, sometimes uh, it is and sometimes it isn't. I mean, there are a lot of cases where you don't want to be too clear. I mean, uh, if you're trying that's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 That's trying true, to that's manipulate, true. if you're trying to trick, <laughs> you know, true, yeah. if you're trying to con <laughs> someone, if you're trying to, you know, if uh, I'm sure if you think about lawyers in a courtroom, mm -hmm. like they're not always trying to be clear. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's, there's just so many different human per it's like, how do you hold your arm? You know, like you can't just talk about that by itself. Like, should you hold your arm stiff or floppy? Mm -hmm. Like, well, it really depends. You know, <laughs> right. are you like cooking? Are you boxing? Are you typing? Like what? It just doesn't, I think later Wittgenstein is very good about this, um, partly because early Wittgenstein is exactly what he realizes is totally wrong. So he has like a very uh, personal stake in realizing like, yeah, there's some people like me 20 years ago who sort of try to impose one narrow model onto this complicated human existence because they're in the grip of a certain picture. But in fact, there are lots of different things going on. So early in philosophical investigations, which is like the key later Wittgenstein book, 
he says, you know, think about the tools in a toolbox. Like, what do they have in common? A hammer, a pot of glue, scissors, a screw, a screwdriver. Like, what do those have in common? Well, they're all tools. But what else can you say that they share? You might think, well, they have to share something because they're all tools. So they share toolness or they share, like, the ability to modify something. Although, does the pot of glue? Like, I don't know. So, and then he's like, well, that doesn't even add anything if you say they share toolness, because the whole point is that they're different, Mm -hmm. because you need different tools to do different things. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's that's the kind of background I have for not getting too sucked into those, like, let's impose one answer on the question of what does language do because that's just not what what human life is like yeah i I would totally agree and i like how you're you're kind of showing the flexibility or in some ways the grayness of of language and how it's sometimes it can be very clear and other times it's not and sometimes it's for different reasons um i guess one one footnote i have is i don't have you or do you think there's a, a difference between translating from uh, maybe what we call dead languages? I don't know if that's the term we use. So if you're Sumerian or Akkadian or, you know, Syriac, these, you know, kind of languages many people don't use anymore, if at all, as opposed to something that was written, you know, in modern day German. Well, sure there is. I mean, of course there is. How could there not be? I mean, um but in terms of translation, though, like would, would people approach it differently? So let's say somebody knows, like, I'm just throwing this out there. Let's say somebody is fluent in uh, Akkadian. I'm just throwing it out there. And they're, they're, they're fluent. They've, they've done all the work and they've done the text and stuff. And they're trying to translate something um, into English or another language. Would, you know, obviously, every, again, everyone's different. But do you think that there's a, a big difference or is language just kind of language, no matter when it is? Well, Again, I would just say, like, of course, it's different. How could it not be different? I mean, fluent means something different. Or, again, if you want to make the distinction between fluent and native or native level, um, uh, I don't, um, I don't want to always privilege like first language or native language because there are a lot of excellent translators who are native level, you might say, or I would just say excellent in writing in mm-hmm. languages that were not their first language. And so there's uh, furthermore a uh, political dimension to that. So for example, you know, a colonized uh, person who grew up, I mean, I'm thinking specifically of like Korean, you know, someone whose first language is Korean, but like grew up in a colonial system and maybe like moved around as a diplomat a lot and went to American school or English schools, English language schools in other countries and, you know, writes English perfectly, even though Korean is their first language. Mm. You know, you're going to get more of the people in that situation than you're going to get like Americans who write German as well as they write English mm. because of the power imbalances between the language groups and stuff like that. But 
that that's a side note. That's just to sort of apologize in a way or to take back this idea that like native is somehow magically better than anything else. But I think you do want a distinction between fluent and native level. In other words, like I'm fluent in German, but I'm not native level in German. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with a dead language, you're you're not going to have any native or n- native level mm-hmm. speakers or readers or writers. The language is not going to sort of fully exist the same way a living language does. Like they're going to be words in Akkadian that no one knows what they mean. Right. Um, and you're also going to be um, in a community of people who learned Akkadian in a different way than they learned Spanish. You're going to be writing for people who are reading things translated from Akkadian, and that's going to be a different community, most likely, mm-hmm. than you know the people who are reading the latest Gabriel Garcia Marquez translation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole thing is different. Yeah. Um, you're you maybe you might just be published by academic presses producing scholarly editions for Acadian scholars. Like I don't think other than Gilgamesh, you're gonna be doing, you know, anything comparable to like translating some new novel. And even with Gilgamesh, there's no fixed original that was like published by the Acadian publishing house that owns the copyright in the first place. So like, you're going to be reconstructing, which means constructing, you know, I mean, the whole thing is different. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. once you, once you start looking specifically at the like actual, um, the actual experience and the actual context that writer, reader and translator are in, Mm -hmm. you know, it stops being plausible to just say, well, sure, things are different, but is it exactly the same? Like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very helpful. I, I was thinking about that as I was I was uh, preparing for this. I was like, I wonder, I mean, I would assume there's differences, but I wonder what it is. And and I think, again, the fact that it's it's not used anymore, it's not, we don't hear that, it's not, so automatically there's going to be a different audience and I would imagine a different process and, you know, there's a handful of people that can probably speak that anyways. Do you do you find that there's a difference between translating stuff with with um, an author that's still around as opposed to someone that's not? So the question here is is you know as I mentioned the cetology, you know the author is obviously alive and he speaks English and uh, Norwegian. That's different than someone like Proust who's not alive and you know in different language. Do you find I don't know if you've you know, worked with him closely and were like, you know, what about this page here or this, or was it just totally blind or how, how do you find that experience? No, I've, I've done both. I mean, it's just, it's just like translating different books. Um, you know, they're different. Um, so I have translated um, three books by Patrick Modiano, for example, who is alive and who answers questions from some people, but like I had zero contact with him. I never asked him anything. Um, He never asked me anything. Like I just didn't have that relationship with him at all. Um, So 
it was, in some ways, you might say analogous to translating a dead writer, but in terms of the reception, in terms of the whole context of who readers thought he was and why they're reading him and why the publishers were publishing them and how the publishers were publishing them and marketing them and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, it it was different. Like, Modiano isn't a dead writer. In fact, he just won the Nobel Prize and Americans are curious who he is. So that is part of the translation uh, reality as much as whether or not I'm emailing with him. Like about Fossa, um, I I have a great email relationship with him. He's super responsive and kind and, and great. I didn't meet him in person until last year, even though I've been translating him for 20 years wow. because we just emailed sometimes. And he is, um, you know, outside of England and America, he is known as a playwright. He's the most produced living playwright in the world. So like nobody wow. alive has had more productions of their plays than him. Every other language besides English, like the English theater tradition is just hostile to, to it in a way that kind of has made that not happen. Mm-hmm. But Chinese and you know, in Iran, in Africa, in Latin America, and Western Europe, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been translated a lot, and he also translates um, into Norwegian. And so very early on, he he said, he showed me that he knew, like, you either trust the translator or you don't. And he just, you know, he doesn't care about nitpicky things Obviously, we both, you know, don't want there to be mistakes. We don't want like an elbow to be translated as a knee or something. But, you know, on the scale of possible problems, like the book sounding bad would be worse than if an elbow was a knee, like by mistake once. You know what I mean? So um, uh, he has always been super trusting and. uh, respectful, really, and aware that, you know, what matters is can I produce a musical, hypnotic book that people want to read? I mean, he actually, you know, he knows that I like, you might say, don't know Norwegian. Um, and he laughs about it. He's like, I don't know how you managed to produce such great <laughs> translations. You don't even know Norwegian. Um <laughs> Again, just for listeners out there who might be appalled, I do know how to read Norwegian. I just don't know how to speak Norwegian. But anyway, but he knows, you know, like, and and he is aware, he sort of shares my attitude that, um, you know, a book that people want to read in English is the, is the goal. Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating how it's, it's obviously going to be different relationships with different people. But it's so interesting how I wonder you know, what, what that's like to have, like, you know, someone you seeing your translation, reading your stuff and, and saying like, yeah, this is really good. Like, you're really, really good at this. Well, I, I mean, there are different experiences too. Like, um, you know, this is also, I, I'm not sure you have in the forefront of your question, the fact that it's different if you're translating into English than if you're translating into Albanian, because mm-hmm. 
if you're translating Jonathan Franzen into Albanian, chances are very low that Jonathan Franzen knows Albanian. On the other hand, if you're translating Yunfasa into English, chances are very high that Yunfasa will know English. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, there will be a range. Like there uh, is quite a difference between knowing English sort of competently and knowing English uh, well and knowing English perfectly. And if an author is not aware of where they fall on that spectrum, then it can be kind of annoying if they start sort of, Fossa does not do this, let me be clear, but I have had the experience where people will sort of, wait, doesn't this word mean that? And it has to, I have to say like, yes, well, it does sometimes, but like in this sentence, that's not how you'd say it and it doesn't sound good. And so um, that's something that translators into English have to deal with a lot more than translators into other languages because English is such a hegemonic language. I have uh, two final questions here about translation and and that topic i guess the first question is is just kind of peeling back the curtain a bit as much as you want um you've done a bunch of different types of stuff um you've translated wittgenstein is that right uh that's coming out later this year i redid the tractatus you're you're a brave man (laughs) i am i mean because i'm trying to bring it all the way into english and yet the text is very iconic in the version that there is. So the world is everything that is the case is what people want to see as line one of the Tractatus. But is the case is not really what he was saying. Like there's, there's the phrase is Stefal was not well translated as is the case. You mm-hmm. is def, It just means it's the way things fall out. It's the way things happen to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, an Austrian would say, this is to fall that I'm sick. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, it is the case I am sick. Like they're not saying that because they're not a robot. Mm-hmm. They just mean like, yep, I got sick. Like I thought I could avoid it, but no, it got me. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's what it means. And so what Wittgenstein means is not, is the case. What it means is everything that is the way it is, but it could have been different. Everything that like the world is everything that happens to be the way it is, is kind of what he means. That's not a good translation either, but that in terms of the meaning is closer. And so the way I translate it is the world is everything that is. I could see that. And people are mad, but that, but but that it doesn't say is the case because <laughs> right. like I've been reading Wittgenstein for right, 40 sure. years and the world is everything that is the case. And so um, this is another angle on the point I keep making, which is that concrete real-life situations are very particular and detailed. So here, the it's, it's very important that there is an existing translation that people have been reading very intently for very many years and have feelings about. And so I would say religiously, to, they've read that translation religiously for many. <laughs> right. And they've, they've built entire careers on articles mm-hmm. interpreting the, the minutia of that text mm-hmm. and perhaps have done so 
with reference to the English text and without reference to the German text. So they have a lot invested in the idea that the English text they've been studying for so many years is is the real one. And in fact, Ludwig himself did approve it. And so that is an argument that they often implicitly or explicitly use to say the English is the real thing, like has the stamp of the author's approval. But the fact is, Ludwig's English was not good enough to make those decisions. And that's something I deal with with living authors all the time. An author can say, shouldn't it be this? And the answer might be no. I mean, the answer might be yes, but the answer might also be no, because they don't know English well enough to make that call. So, you know, for all of Wittgenstein's Olympian greatness, he's also in that very normal category of like, his word is not gospel about what's the best English word choice, you know? Um, but I, I look forward to all of the people upset <laughs> with your translation in a couple of months. I, I I can't wait for it because to me, I, I think what you're saying makes sense is, well, what, what's the, 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 what's the essence of what this is trying to say? Like sometimes words are clunky and it's like, okay, don't get married to the word or the phrasing of it. Even if it's been that way for a while, if this is more, encapsulated of what's being trying to be expressed shouldn't you go with that like don't be married well, to that's one what way transla- right i mean but what makes it very meta and kind of interesting is that the book is about the relationship between language and reality <laughs> so um you know he himself i i I'm sorry if we're getting on too it's, long it's okay it's okay this. um In the Tractatus, he mentions translation, like literal translation, only twice. And both times he talks about it as basically swapping out a German word for an English word. Like, if you know the meaning of the German word and you know the meaning of the same English word, you must know that they're the same meaning. Or um, he talks about translation in that way, as though all of human language was German with different vocabulary swapped in. And the fact is, that's just not true. Like, he's wrong. And yet, that's very built into his theory. You know, so the fact that how you express things in English, the things you express in English are different than the things you express in other languages is a data point that's like pretty relevant to the book and kind of goes against the argument of a lot of the book. Although by the end of the book, his view seems to have shifted a bit. And he says things like the world of the happy person is different than the world of the unhappy person. So, you know, the world of the French speaker is different than the world of the English speaker. He seems to be sort of groping towards that. Although most of the main argument of the book has no room for those differences because there has to be this like one-to-one match between the German language and like facts. Um, This is another great thing about later Wittgenstein. He has a joke in Philosophical Investigations about this French, uh, I forget if he's a politician or a diplomat, who said that the difference between French and all the other languages is that in French, the words come in the order you think them. Which is, of course, a joke about being arrogant and imposing one language's kind of way of structuring reality onto all the other languages. So like, 
in this French diplomat's mind, anyone speaking English, like, is of course thinking the one and only way you can think, and then turning the words from their natural French into this weird alien English thing, Mm -hmm. right? And Wittgenstein makes a joke about that. And to me, it's very clearly a joke at his own youthful self's expense. You know, like, this is what the Tractatus was arguing, basically. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's quite a can of worms. Yeah, I I look forward to to seeing the, to to reading the translation, but really to see the reaction people will have. I was going to ask about, um, you've talked about it, I guess, a little bit, so you could just go on with it a little bit, I guess, more is, you know, how do you, you've done different things, different genres, different languages. How do you choose what you want? Is your... Does your publicist just say, or your your agent say, like, do this one? Or, or are you, like, reading it when, you know what, I kind of want to do that. This doesn't have a good English translation. Or do you just, how, what's your process? Like, how do you how do you go about it? Yeah, um, I mean, it, same answer. It all depends. <laughs> sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm now uh, well-known enough that sometimes people come to me with projects. Um, when I was starting out, I was, of course, pitching them the same way any new author has to, you know, no one's going to come knocking at your door before you've published anything. You have to come knocking on their doors. Um, And um, as for the agent, you know, I, uh, I had an agent for the more commercial projects like the Rorschach book, but there really just isn't enough money and literary translation for it to be worth it. And also I kind of have more um, contacts, et cetera, than, in, than most agents would in the context of like translation stuff. So um, I don't have an agent for translation and I never have because, you know, shaving another 15% off the small amount would really make it impossible and also would be worth the agent's time and wouldn't be the agent's specialty. I'm sure some authors have, some translators have agents, some translators have um, lawyers to like review the contracts, but like they still do the decisions about like what to take on and stuff like that. So um, to not totally dodge your question, I'll say that, you know, a lot of what I've done is what I call like modern classics. Um, So, you know, 50 to 120 year old books that are now considered pretty canonical, some of them not being retranslated, many of them being retranslated. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it shifts. Like at one point after I was finishing up or when I was finishing up doing uh, Thomas Mann, Hermann Hesse, and Bambi, which is another like 1920s German language novel. I was like, come on, dead men of the 20s, like give me a break. And I did somewhat intentionally like take on three projects, including the My Men book you mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. by Living Women who are young, like younger than 40, you know, like I wanted, that was a sort of concerted effort. Um, But it it usually just, you know, at the same time, someone approached me to do the Wittgenstein, another like dead German man in the 20s. So um, 
it it just depends. Hmm. Hmm. That's just really. I was I was curious about that, and 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 I guess it just. I'm I know it's probably different with every single one, but do you have like a a kind of process for for like a kind of standard kind of process you do like you read it originally all the way through and then you do another pass at it or you don't have to get into the details but what's your general process um yes some people um some translators always like to read it all the way through first i tend not to i mean if it's a retranslation of something i've read before Mm -hmm. or if i read a book and then decided it was good and tried to find a someone to do it then Obviously, in those cases, I have read the book before, whereas if it's Fossa's latest, you know, that I know I'm going to do anyway, I don't have to read it first. And I prefer not to because, um, again, I'm thinking in terms of I'm trying to uh, kind of tap into and be aware as much as possible of the reading experience I'm having and then give English language readers that experience. Mm-hmm. So I don't really see any value in like knowing how the book ends because that's not the reading experience of people reading the book for the first time. Obviously it's the rereading experience and those are readers too, but you know, the author has decided what to reveal in what order and you know, how that makes, how that works on me as a reader is like the data that I have that I'm trying to translate. Obviously, if something gets revealed later that like means you have to retranslate something from earlier, you can just go back and fix it. Like, it's not like I'm not allowed to touch it. It's not some sort of strict procedure or whatever. But, um, but I want to feel it as I'm reading it. Um, and because that feeling is what I want to have most at my fingertips when I'm producing a translation. So I typically do it relatively slowly as I uh, as I go along and then revise. Again, there's some translators who like to do a super fast, super sloppy first pass with tons of like bracketed questions to themselves and whatever. And then they really put their energy into the revising. There are others who like really want to nail down every single sentence before they move to the next sentence. And I'm kind of in the middle. Like I try to resolve things, but I know that if I really can't, that it's not the end of the world because I'm going to go back through it. Um And then most of my going back through it is either resolving those questions or not really referring to the original anymore because I'm trying to make it sound good in English. Um, So that's the basic. Yeah, that's I I was curious about that because I've I mean, I've read a handful of your translations at this point. And I'm like, see, I mean, I'm sure the septology, I mean, that's a you know, there's technically, I think seven books, right? So there's, you know, (laughs) that I was like, this is a lot. Like, how do you, how did you get through it? But then, you know, my men is, you know, it's relatively, you know, shorter, not to say it's easier or anything like that, but it's, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder, you know, how that went about, or if it's a different approach. I was curious about the different approaches, I guess. Yeah. um, I mean, the real outlier is a book I translated called Anniversaries. That's just a Titanic masterpiece. One of Mm -hmm. the all-time world-class, you know, Tolstoy, Dante-level great books. And it's 1,700 pages. And that one is also difficult as well as long. 
Um, Septology is a bit less of an outlier than it seems. So it's in seven parts, but it was pub and he, he wrote it. He sort of finished the whole thing before publishing the first part, but uh, it was published in Norwegian and simultaneously in English and some other languages as three books. So parts one and two are the first book, parts three through five are the second book, and then six and seven is the third book. And each of those books is normal length, like around the same. And those were a year apart. So um, I was translating them one at a time. And, you know, it's... um, the thing about translation, which is both good and bad as a very pragmatic professional thing, is that it kind of just takes the time it takes. Like you can't skim. Um, if a book is 400 pages, it's going to take you twice as long as a book that's 200 pages because you have to do every sentence. Like they're all there. You got to do them. And so um, it doesn't. I mean, other than the sort of practical aspects of like getting interim payments and like paying the rent every month and stuff, it doesn't really matter if you do one 500 page book or five 100 page books. Uh, I mean, in a, in a very practical small scale in terms of like multitasking and sort of switching gears and stuff, it, it matters in the friction between the parts but like basically there's so many pages a day you can do and you know it's it's either going to be divided among five books a year or it's going to be like half a book a year depending on how long the book is yeah mm-hmm. yeah the i guess the last question on translation i have is is what so for for listeners right you know they they they're they're in a Barnes and Noble or wherever they're in a bookstore, local bookstore, and they see on the shelf. I'll just use an easy one. They they see five trans English translations of Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, and maybe Constance uh, Garnett is there, and Prevera and Lahansky's there, and there's uh, two or three other new ones. What 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 is a good? I guess again. I, I can already hear your answer. <laughs> I'm but, sure you can. My answer is like, going to be whatever you want, whatever you like, whatever. You, but it, is well, there it a, is. I mean, <laughs> it, it, the answer is you go into a bookstore and you see five, you know, uh, Daniel Steele novels, and you want to. You're in the mood to read a Daniel Steele novel. Which one do you pick? Well. You just, how do you pick? You like look at the back cover, maybe you read a paragraph or two. You kind of think what you're in the mood for. You look at how heavy it seems and like whether you're going to the beach with it or not. And like, you just pick, like, it's just, it's just living. You know, you, you just are navigating your way through the, how do you decide which seat to sit in, in a movie theater? Like, I don't ha- I don't know the heuristic, but I make decisions and so do you and so does everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um so you knew I was gonna say that. Yeah, I know you're gonna say that. Yeah. I always I for me personally, and everyone's different, but um I mean I'm a big fan of uh, Dostoevsky and and I, I do like the Premier Lohansky uh Lohansky, uh translation, but I think it's actually fun because I like rereading books. Uh not all, but reading and I like to get the different translations and kind of seeing like 
oh, that's cool. That was a cool decision there. Or, oh, that feels right. a little bit nicer or, you know, whatever. I have no idea because I don't know Russian. But it's one of those things, like you were saying, kind of like as a reading experience where it's like, oh, that was cool. Like, obviously, I know the story and I know what's going to happen and all these things. But it's like that was I got more out of this translation a little bit or maybe that's just the time of uh, life I'm in at this point. And it's like, oh, yeah, this connected or clicked with me. And so actually, if I'm rereading books, I like kind of reading in different translations. Yeah, I mean, but all I want to say is just to point out that that's your description of your heuristic. And I'm sure you wouldn't try and impose it on everyone else because some people are reading crime and punishment as kind of checking off a box of like, now I've read this famous book and I feel smarter. Like some people are reading it to review it for the New York Review of Books. Some people want what they feel is the most academically scrupulous. Some people want the newest just because it's the newest. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, like I'd say mine is a uh, much more of just an esthete kind of decision. Like I kept trying to read um, Dead Souls by Gogol because mm-hmm. I kept hearing how great it is and Nabokov loved it and everyone loves it and I could never get into it. Until I read the New York Review of Books, the New York Review Books translation um, that came out maybe five, 10 years ago. Loved it, tore through it, read it in like a week. It was hilarious. You got the humor, right? It was over. You know, like that's the one that worked for me. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had been attempting to pick on those criteria and they weren't working out for me. And then, like, I found the one that did work out for me. But again, like, um, that's just my version. The way your version is like, if I'm going to be putting in the time to reread it, why don't I give myself a little variety? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how, why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. I think it's, I think it's good that people, um, <laughs> they can take all the pressure and anxiety off of themselves. It's not, uh, you don't need to have all of this anxiety on it. So well, people I mean, are going to have depends. all Like if you're studying for exams, maybe you need some pressure on well, yourself. Well, that's like, true. Yes. It's <laughs> the same. It's the same with the thing about clarity. Like <laughs> yeah. e- even those kinds of seemingly, uh, universal, um, descriptions, like, well, obviously language needs to be clear or obviously people should just relax. Like sometimes they shouldn't relax, but you know, I'm just describing how I go about picking my Russian translations. Like I just want something I'll like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just, that's just where I'm coming from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have, um, I have been absolutely uh, fulfilled (laughs) intellectually in terms of translation. Uh, I can't wait for your, for your book to come out. And of course, I'll point people in the right direction. I think we'll hold off on Mr. Uh, Rorschach for today um, and just as an excuse to talk about him another time. But um, I am I am very, very happy that you decided to um, come on and talk everything about translation. It was very, very, very edifying. Uh, really, really gave me a lot to think about, and I'm sure listeners will as well. So you have a few things coming out. So you tell me. Where are the best places for people to find yourself um, and where they can find your your many uh, translated works and also your your original stuff? Well, thanks. Uh, I, I thought it was a, a really interesting discussion, the way you were 
you kept pushing me into <laughs> you kept pushing me into saying that it's complicated, you know. Uh, and that's good. That's better than it. being pushed to simplify. Um, I do have a website, uh, which is myname.com. The problem being that both my first name and last name are spelled wrong. So it's D-A-M-I-O-N and then S-E-A-R-L-S, not L-E-S and anything. Um, I'm sure Google can figure it out if you type something close. But anyway, DamianSorrels.com is usually pretty up to date and has links to all the different books and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, Goodreads or Amazon, type my name in and you'll see everything. Yeah. yeah. No, Although actually I, I have a double, despite both my names being spelled wrong. Oh, there's really? another um, Damien Ion Searles RLS in the world who's uh, who is like patents. He's an engineer at Intel. So if you look at Amazon, you'll see all of these sort of high literary European books. And then you'll see the Korean semiconductor electronics industry <laughs> co-authored by Damien Searles and, and a couple of other guys. Um, but uh, that that's the other one. That's the other one. <laughs> well, very good. Very good. I'm, I'm looking forward to more of your translations, your, your, your book on uh, philosophy of translation and all good things. And so uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy you came on. Big, big, big thanks for for having such a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you again. Of course.